Welcome to The Label Podcast, a show about disability, illness and difference. I'm Lucy. And I'm Alice. Don't forget in this episode, I might swear, Lucy might cry, and you can check out details of the trigger warnings on our website. Hello, everybody, and welcome to an episode of Labelled Podcast. I am Lucy, and I'm joined by Alice. Uh, you're listening to a very special uh, episode because we're going to be uh, foreshadowing to our Pride series, which is coming up later in the year, aren't we, Alice? <laughs> Yes, sorry, Lucy's been told off because I don't, yeah. I don't really like being called Al. No, and I'm so... trying so hard. I'm doing so well up until today, where I've just seemed to be I've forgotten everything. So sorry, like six times today. It's six. Like, times. I don't know what it is. It's just not. It's just I, just not a fan of Al. No. And I did say if you'd have told me this earlier on in the friendship, it would have been a lot easier for me to go stop doing that. <laughs> stop doing that. Stop. So you know, sorry. you've only got yourself. You've only got yourself to blame, really. But uh, yeah, we're, we're working on it. It's getting there. We'll get there. It's it's a learning process, isn't it? I will eventually stop calling it. You need to get one of them little bands that you flick on your wrist. And you, every time I say it, it's like, no, stop it. <laughs> I I, feel, I, I've always thought of myself as more of a positive reinforcement kind of person. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if you'd like to gently <laughs> abuse yourself, Luce, yeah. that is entirely your call. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm, but I will get there. It's fine. It's fine. So, yeah, as Lucy said, we are um, foreshadowing, which makes it sound much creepier than it is. Mm. It's actually cool and exciting. Um, <laughs> we're doing, we are celebrating LGBTQIA Pride Month this June. Um, and we have been very spoiled by the guests who have offered to come on the show and come and have a chat with us. So much so that we have more guests than we have space in our uh, schedule for mm -hmm. so we've decided that we're gonna uh drop some episodes a bit early and yeah wet your wet your guys's appetite so today we've been joined by fiona robin robertson mm -hmm. i keep calling you fiona robinson and that is not your name <laughs> fiona robertson. we're very uh, good at this we're very good at this yeah, yeah, super <laughs> profesh, uh, <laughs> who has come on to talk about some of her campaign work. So, Fiona, do you want to just jump in and introduce yourself and tell us uh, a little bit about you and, and what you do? Hi there. Thanks for having me and thanks for doing this series. I think it's going to be really interesting. There's a lot to talk about. I'm Fiona Robertson, as I said. Um, I... <laughs> I'm a disability justice activist um, in Scotland. I have also done a lot of work uh, on LGBT issues. Um, I was, for three years, I was the Equalities Convener for the SNP. And as part of that, I also um, was 
a co-chair in the Dis disabled members group and the convener of Out for Indy, which is the LGBTQ plus wing of uh, the SNP. So, uh, but as the equalities convener, my job was to look at the intersections of all of the different protected characteristics. That was my key role and try and work out um, how to best make sure that both the party was inclusive, but also the things that we were doing were, and the things that uh, the policies that we were creating um, included everyone. And that can be, can be, can be complicated, um, but there are a lot of very important things, uh, especially when it comes to disability, where the overlaps with other, um, with other characteristics are, and missed and they have there are very specific issues um, for people who have multiple marginalizations and those things often get elided by the um the, the much bigger um more common stories so i think what i'm here to talk about is some of them some of the ways that the communities intersect and why shared solidarity is so important I like that. I like the idea of uh, shared solidarities. I think yeah, that's, me too. That's something that um, is very sort of. I think it's very us, Liz, yes. isn't it? Very on brand. Yes, because yeah. one of the things that you know we're <laughs> always talking about is the fact that um, you know we are disabled people, but our disability is not all of our identity. Mm. And um, although Lucy and I are both straight you know for us part of the reason we wanted to to do a pride series is because we know that so often um those sort of people with intersectional identities get put in one camp or the other and that's that's simply not how we exist it's not how we live our lives you cannot switch off your disability to experience your sexuality it's it's just not how it works so yeah. um I think promoting that kind of shared solidarity for um especially for you know the those of us who say Lucy and I you know we we are straight but we're disabled for us we want to show that shared solidarity for the members of the disabled community who identify you know as other than straight I think that's really important and I think for me as well um you know I'm not about kind of like oh I've got it worse than you because I've faced this discrimination for me if we are in a minority then <clears throat> there is a shared you might not be able to experience exactly what my issues are but I feel like there's a shared empathy of we've all got a struggle and if one of us can get a doorway into an equal society <laughs> then it opens the floodgates for everybody yeah. else doesn't it so that is something that i am um, you know i've never been one for all oh, like this uh, like disability top trumps don't do that kind of equality <laughs> top trumps don't do that either um because it's important for me that you know we are empathetic as as to host of a pan disability podcast it, we're em empathetic to everybody's struggles you know just because I can't walk or Alice can't see does not mean that we sit here and go, well, we've got it. We've got it worse than you kind of thing. It's very much kind of, we're, we're, all, we're all in this together. And yes, it's a bit 
shit. But if we work together, that you know, the possibilities are endless. And that's why I really like, um, and I'm trying to use the phrase inclusion more than I am sort of talking when I talk about access and yeah. accessibility, because actually I think inclusion is something that includes people more broadly than mm-hmm. the ideas of access, because I think traditionally people think of access and accessibility, even amongst, you know, within the disabled community, people immediately think wheelchairs. I can't yeah. get in there because I'm in a wheelchair. Whereas actually, you know, inclusion is is far more complex than that. Yeah. As as you were saying, Fiona, you know, it's so many um ways that those kind of issues intersect and inform one another. And I think that there's a really important um the thing that I really liked about being the equalities convener was uh that it it allowed me to really look at the the issue as a whole because in my opinion and in my experience the issues that marginalized people are facing it's all the same system it affects mm. us in different ways and it affects us to different degrees and there's absolutely no way to escape the fact that some people do have vastly worse experiences under that system than other people do but Mm. it's all the same system and Mm. it is imperative that when we are fighting it that when we are trying to dismantle these inequalities that we don't just reinforce other inequalities to do that it's really important within our own communities that we don't just replicate the same inequalities from everywhere else so it's it's a really it's a it's a problem in in all communities but it's something that i think people are becoming more aware of now and i think that they are trying to make more of an effort to look at say the disability community and and say yes we do still have uh we do still have these issues where like you know the most prominent voices are a very specific demographic set of people um who Mm. are disabled but otherwise fit all the other kind of metrics of a Mm. people who have power and privilege within our society and that it's really important that we create a world which doesn't have any of those inequalities and we we don't build our liberation on other people's oppression we can't do that that can't be how we do this no no i i i like that that's a really you know it's a really powerful message i think immediately fiona do you want to join our club (laughs) 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 and and i think one of the things that's that I really like about that as well is is you know you're talking about the different minorities kind of versus that one system and I think yeah. that's that I I like that it's and it's I mean it, it feels very familiar to a lot of the things that we've said and a lot of the stuff that other guests have said is yeah. you know it's it is this one big system very much promotes and and us versus each other exactly I was a I was about to say exactly the same thing, Alice. Sometimes I think the reason why you get the the (laughs) diversity and inclusion top trumps is because people don't understand that it's the same system we're fighting and Mm. they're thinking of a more individual problem rather than just like, oh, it's, you know, this is what I have to deal with. And they're not Mm. thinking 
they're not looking at it as a bigger picture. They're not seeing that actually it's the system that's faulty, not you as a person. And I think that's where you get the whole, yeah, well, I've got it, I've got it harder. I've got it tougher. That's where that comes from. There's an old joke um, that I use a lot and have used for many, many years. Um, it's still relevant, unfortunately, which is uh, there's a, a Tory, a refugee and a disabled person are sitting at a table and they get a cake cut into 12 slices. And the Tory takes 11 of them and then says to the disabled person, watch out for that, that refugee. He's after your bit of cake. Mm. And this is <laughs> yeah. this was the permanent problem that uh, especially before I got involved in party politics I was uh, much more involved in kind of street activism disabled um, activism and a lot of the problem that we had was that trying to get people within the community to understand that it wasn't refugees taking their houses or their support yeah. or it wasn't their yeah. fault that the um, that they weren't getting benefits, that this is uh, this is a choice that is made by a government that has an enormous amount of power, an enormous amount of money. We're one of the richest countries in the world. There's no reason that both sets of people can't be supported, except that it does make it very easy for them to make us fight each other instead of them. And as long as mm. they do that, then... Because you're distracted, aren't you? Yeah. You're distracted. If you're fighting exactly. other people, you're... You're distracted. So. Yeah. And and I've I've read enough like fantasy fiction to know that that's how the bad guys do it. Yeah. Like that's, <laughs> that's how the, they always go, hey, you know Look over there. It, exactly, exactly. <laughs> While there it turns out that they're the ones secretly hiding in plain sight, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, squirreling away all the all the treasure. Yeah. Um and it's <laughs> and you just and you just sort of it's the thing that that it sort of makes me want to kind of I I want to shake people mm -hmm. and say like do you realize how much easier it would be to change this one system than it would be to try and change all the kind of sociological cultural um you know ethnic experiences of all these huge diverse minorities it's much easier to change this one big system that's basically cock blocking the rest of us yeah, it's run by like five people from the same school like exactly <laughs> you have such a way with the words alice <laughs> the tories are cock blocking me into living the life yeah. i want to lead absolutely yeah yeah and just you know also along the way as part of their cock blocking strategy is like you know We'll just increase all energy costs, so it's fine. All those vulnerable people will just die, and we won't have to worry about it. Who anymore. needs the heating anyway? Eh? Exactly, we won't have to pay benefits for people if you know they've frozen to death in their beds. I no. mean, we've been calling it a cull for the last fifteen years, and it's still true. Yeah. It's never been more yeah. true than it is in the last couple of years, unfortunately. Yeah, and uh, and and you know. Yet all of the stuff with uh, that the fucking Tories having parties while we were all in lockdown was a big fuss for five minutes. No one gave a shit. Yeah, yeah, nobody yeah, gave no, a shit. That made me very cross. As uh, rightly should as should it, you know, I was just like, I I spent God knows how many months frightened to death, crying nearly every day, ringing Alice saying, "Is there anything I can do for this podcast we're about to set up?" Because I just needed a distraction. Yeah. Um, 
and yeah that no i that was like you just think first it was the dominic cummins thing driving to barnard castle to test his eyesight that was one and i just thought i just want just just say sorry i was you know that thing where you're like I want you to say sorry. And I was like, uh-uh, no, uh-uh. no, 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 no. Sorry's not enough. I'm no. uh, As far as I'm concerned, the yeah. French had it right. Fucking guillotine the lot of them. Let them eat cake. Yes. Anyway. Um... <laughs> I'm, I'm keeping very quiet on that because of the party ball. The party affiliation would not like me commenting there, I think. Uh-huh. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, that, is, that is the thing that I, as... Uh, I always, I always sort of say when Lucy's like, "Hey, you know, we should try and get some funding from this and this," and I'm like, "I do quite like that we're independent because it means okay. I can just run oh, yeah. my fucking mouth and <laughs> nobody can stop me." We're independent, but we're poor. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, can't really afford to do anything. Uh, yeah, the but, price um, of integrity. Well, I know. Yeah, I know. yeah. The price of integrity is uh, you guys, however much you guys decide to donate to GoFundMe <laughs> um, to help keep us going. Every- I will whore myself out on that GoFundMe <laughs> wherever possible. Every time I mention it, she just slips it in there every episode. You know, any, you know any Tories mention, any being cockblockers would make excellent merch that you could sell. <laughs> <laughs> There's lots yeah, of there's, lo- there's lots of things that I say that Alice automatically goes. That's going on a t-shirt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I still think my favourite so far is the t-shirt idea we had for Horatio Nelson looking super serious and in his like fancy hat and stuff, and then underneath it, it just says, "Come at me, bitch." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's one of my favourites. That's a, that's on a tote bag and a t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Great, right? Where were we? Uh, I mean, we were we were Tory bashing, but we I were think Tory bashing. We should probably we focus on something Fiona. constructive instead. Yeah. <laughs> Fiona actually had some sensible things to say. Yeah, so. <laughs> Fiona, if you want to run with whatever topic oh, takes Lord. your fancy. Okay, there's. There, I mean, there's so many things, and uh, so when I when I first kind of said uh, when I sent in my wee email saying, "Oh, I'm here." Um, then there were a couple of things that I thought would be really useful to talk about uh, that often aren't brought up, especially in when we're talking about either LGBTQ issues or disability issues. And this is the thing that we're talking about is that you have to, you usually you have to choose one part of yourself to be active mm. about. And mm-hmm. it shouldn't be like that because as we understand from intersectionality theory and practice now um we're much more aware of the fact that um and you you too will have experienced this that that there are things that a disabled woman experiences that aren't Mm. universal to disability or to womanhood but are specific Mm. to being a disabled woman and that same thing applies to all of the different intersections and there are very specific and and often quite complex issues which um, come up especially when we're looking at um, at race, at immigration status, at uh, sexuality, at gender identity. Um, All of these things have very specific um, effects on your experience of disability. So when it comes to things like sexuality 
and um, gender identity. One of the things that we've really struggled with over the last two years, especially, is that a lot of people had to return home for care and not necessarily to families who were accepting and affirming of their lives. A lot of, we all know the terrible statistics about um, young people who are LGBT plus and how often they are homeless, how often they have to um, leave home before they can really live as themselves. And if they are in a situation where their families are the carers, then there are um, restrictions which are placed upon them. And, and there are a lot of people had to go back into the closet in order to be able mm. to survive mm. the last two years. And that's a, a really horrendous um, dual uh, problem from the pandemic. And the LGBT community is so vibrant and it's, it, I mean, it has all of its many dramas, but it is, uh, it's a shared family that, that we have all kind of constructed. And being cut off from that has been really hard mm -hmm. for a lot of people. Yeah. And it means that there's so many people who are, especially for, especially for young people who were only just kind of coming to terms with or, or learning to understand their their gender identity or their sexuality and you know didn't get to experience that kind of that process of going out and finding your people mm. and that's it's been it's been really tough for a lot for a lot of people but if you are disabled then it has a significant number of extra costs uh, if you rely on people for your survival then it just it makes me think you know lucy talking about how upset and frustrated she was and I mean, how how trapped Lucy mm, felt yeah. in the pandemic at home with a loving, caring, supportive family. How how devastating that experience must be oh. if your family aren't loving and supportive and you can't even express all the facets of your identity. If you're literally trapped, you know, within the, the confines of what the people around you will let you be. Yeah. Mm hmm it's like you're having to act all the time aren't you really mm -hmm. and cover it up that in itself is exhausting mm -hmm. i mean there were there were i mean during the pandemic there were days where i would kick off not necessarily like because i was so frustrated i think that was the reason why i was getting upset and getting cross and grumpy at like the slightest little thing had set me off but um my family allowed they they understood and they allowed me to within reason to kick off and be grumpy and kick a bin for a bit and you know all this kind of stuff and then they but they allowed me to to do that because they understood but to be able not to have that where you can go do you know what i am really really struggling and i need somebody to um help you know to talk to and understand i used twitter a lot it's where i met alice it's where we started this podcast and um it all st it all, all of this this project that we've got now all stemmed from one afternoon feeling very bored on the way home from my last day trip out thinking to myself what am i going to yeah. do and just put the question out there um and if i hadn't have had like the disabled community to be able to say, look, I'm really, like, I'm really struggling today. Can just somebody like talk to me? 
who isn't a member of my family mm. would be really, really nice. Um, but to be, you know, to have to, I mean, to have to act like, yeah, everything's fine, everything's fine, uh, you know, f to, to a family that aren't accepting, mm. I can't, it's exhausting. If you're only just kind of stepping into um, that, you know, your, your, your community or only just finding your tribe mm. to then be restricted to only engaging with them online and remotely yeah. you know it's just and it's also really i think that there's this other aspect to it which a lot of disabled people will recognize that there's the kind of the other side to this which is that there are there are a lot of disabled lgbt plus people who have never been able to access those spaces mm. and for whom the pandemic was a godsend and aside from the off yeah COVID, yeah they finally got to connect with a community because the community finally went online and started having these yeah. events um in ways that people who like disabled people who live in rural communities disabled people who are not able to leave their houses then these are people who have been cut off from that community all along and mm -hmm. so it's it's incumbent upon the lgbtq community itself to also recognize that it's it's our responsibility to continue that accessibility even when everyone wants to go back and do stuff that's great but also keep these accessible venues I think mm. we've we've said before, Alice, haven't we, how during the pandemic it was brilliant f for us as disabled people because there was concerts online mm. and we could buy, we could buy tickets like everybody else and uh, we thought, oh, this is great. This is... And then for I think for about five minutes, one like Thursday afternoon, I was like, could this be a, the new be world? Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I got really excited, and then of course, you know, yeah. no. Uh, because as soon as we didn't need it anymore, uh, well, yeah, come come back into the office to work, yeah. or you know, oh no, no, come to come to the venue. It's fine. We've got disabled seating. It's fine. No. Um, I literally saw a tweet this morning that was somebody talking about going to a conference, and they were like, oh, "But there's only limited Zoom like spaces." Oh man, what what? <laughs> Why? <laughs> Who said that? Oh, who set that up? Who set that Zoom session up? Because I they've just got the they've just not ticked the right box, have they, in the settings to like let as many people as you want mm -hmm. on it's, Zoom. I mean it's they what <laughs> what has happened is they've gone oh, well it we don't you know they've not thought of Zoom as yeah. an accessibility issue. They've gone, Oh well we want to get a load of people in. Um we'll set up a Zoom for people who maybe can't be bothered to get here. Yeah. We want they've a load not, of we want yeah. a load of mouth breathers in one room, like spreading yeah. their, <laughs> their germs. But this is, uh, I mean, yeah. uh, it's something that we've, I mean, we've all talked about till, you know, the end of the world. That, <laughs> that it, you know, I spent 20 years trying to get any kind of work that would allow remote and flexible working. And it was, mm. I was always told it was impossible. And then it took literally two weeks for the entire world to fix it. And then suddenly now, of course, they're being taken away. But, but the other aspect to it that really frustrates me and that, you know, we talk about as uh, it goes through the community all the time, this kind of incandescent rage that if, if they had been listening to us all along, the world like how much easier would the last two years have been if 
we had had these systems in place if everyone yeah. understood yeah. how to use them if we had in place the kind of the metrics which um allow you to do work from home but which are also um which allow socializing and all the kind of things that people do miss from exactly. offices that those things are not incompatible yeah. it's just that no. it takes a little bit of thought and effort and it just it these things are so possible and it's so important that we don't allow them to treat this as a limited time only pandemic special and we we spoke to mick scarlet yay uh i can't remember when was it before christmas alice i think yes, it was, it was. It was um, like october november i think yeah and he said that and i agree with him if disabled people had been ru ru running the response to the pandemic we would have completely it would have been over in a couple of months we'd have, we'd have managed this a whole lot better because you know disabled people are so good at coming up against problems and going okay okay, yeah. okay where's the work around with this um and uh, we're we're resilient and that kind of thing and what that's what really 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 pissed me off was the fact that i i'd be i've you know before the job that i've got now which i love by the way i'm not planning on moving ever again um but before this job i was looking for jobs and the amount of people that were like no you need to come into the office nine to five monday to friday and i'm like but why yeah yeah, yeah why, there's no though? actual why? reason for it it's just it's a no. surveillance state it's this belief that you can't trust your workers and you can only exactly. not trust your workers if you treat your workers like shit like if you treat your work as well, they work for you, and it, it's yeah, so infuriating. Exactly. And I mean, even even if even like so before I before the pandemic, the job that I am now no longer in, um, we had a database in which you made your notes, and as part of your notes, you know you had to like time track how long it took you to do this particular thing, and how long it took you to write the notes about this particular thing. And how long it took you to maybe travel to the meeting or something like that. And, you know, so it's not even like that, that stuff. Yeah, we have exist. the systems for you know, it. I got that. Exactly. If you really feel like you need to watch and, and be, make sure your workers are accountable for every five seconds of their day, you can do that without dragging them into your shitty air conditioned office <laughs> so that fucking Susan can just talk to you about it. <laughs> Susan's like, about what she's been up to on the weekends. <laughs> Mate, can I also say as well, mate, that, uh, like, you know how bad I am with time, Alice, with numbers mm. of any, like, specific thing. Could you imagine? I'd be putting the wrong time frame in that database. How long does it take you to do this? Four hours, but it's actually taking me 45 minutes? I 100% I did uh, time track on more than one occasion that, uh, occasion that something took me five hours when it was supposed to take me five minutes. So I was like... Why have I worked 48 hours this week? And that's why. Yeah. No, um, <laughs> but that's it's... what you have a manager for. Their job is to check what your, what your hours are. Yeah. In this case, you are my manager. When it all comes oh, to good. all things podcasting, you are my manager because you're like, Lucy, no, Lucy, put that in wrong. Can I have a pay rose? <laughs> <laughs> you might get some meows my... from the cat who has just arrived. Oh. Uh, <laughs> he's uh he's quite pathetic <laughs> oh bless him 
he uh, he had to make an appearance at a at one of the SMP conferences that I did online. That uh, of course I was talking about really important stuff about in in fact about this about disability infrastructure um and and why they desperately need us to be in charge of things because <laughs> oh god we have the answers we've been doing this yeah. all the time but yeah nobody listened the only thing i got on twitter was cat in tweets <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 we are i've got um my sister's living with us at the moment she's got two bulldogs and bertie occasionally will sneak upstairs and sit on the bed and just bark at trees Excellent. um whilst i'm recording which is but, yeah yeah yeah, he just likes to make his voice heard. <laughs> yeah. um, I think we got a bit <laughs> off track from the LGBTQ Sorry, stuff yes. um, there, which I do, of course. But, um, but yes, I think that this is a this is such a vital lesson for us all, and it. I have. Uh, I'm trying. To, I'm trying to say this in a, a measured and a <laughs> polite way. I have okay. no surprise that the business world is going to fuck over disabled people again. No, like, no. Uh, that's no, what no. they do. That's what the government does. There's no... <laughs> They'll be burning us when yeah. we run out. Of, <laughs> like, uh, we out will be useful coal. fuel it's sources. Fine, like... It's fine. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. But there is a... But back to the concept of shared solidarity, it is vital that we hold our community and activist spaces to account on this. It is vital that we challenge them on this at every point where we say, of course, everyone wants to be back to, you know, being sociable and all that kind of stuff. But we have to acknowledge the two aspects to this, which is one, that the version of the world that they want to get back to was already inaccessible to a lot of people and we've made it more yeah. accessible and that's a good thing and second that the world is not going to go back to normal for the foreseeable future because there are a significant number of people who are still going to be needing to shield who because of the irresponsibility of other people um, and that you know we already found it hard to access the world before there was a you know, global plague that meant that the choice to go outside is now now has a significant risk and it's nothing to do with fear or anxiety. It's to do with a serious risk to our health that for some reason we're the yeah. only people who recognize and acknowledge the severity of it, that your two options are, or that there's not just the two options of get it and get it over with or die, that there's this whole other level to it, which we all saw coming we i wrote my first mm -hmm. article about the potential for post viral syndromes in march of 2020 about how about the systems that they had to put in place right now to account for the fact that there was that we knew from other coronaviruses that there was going to be a major post viral disability cohort and uh, mm -hmm. of course nobody gave a fuck nobody listened and um <laughs> You know, again, if they'd if we'd been in charge, then a that cohort would have been significantly smaller, but we also would have had systems in place to deal with that. But we have to be 
other people aren't going to do this for us. We've we've seen this, that we have to be the people who keep holding our communities to account on this. We have to make sure that they maintain levels of accessibility and inclusion that, that yes, have your club nights and have your like in-person poetry readings and stuff, which is my kind of thing, but also keep the online ones, you know, them too. Yeah. You don't need to have yeah. one or the other. I was just going to say, it's a bit like... You wouldn't go, oh, we're holding this event, but it's in a, you know, five-story Victorian <laughs> building that's only accessible by stairs. And then somebody goes, oh, that's no good. Why don't you just do it in this nice ground floor space that's like wheelchair accessible and level? And they and we, we wouldn't go, oh, yeah, that's a really good idea. We'll do that. And then five minutes later go, Oh, actually, actually, we don't we don't like all these wheelchairy people coming in. Let's uh, let's put it back up the stairs. I mean, we would. People, people would absolutely. Please, I was going to say you have not been involved exactly. in political organizing much, then have you? <laughs> it's, it's nonsensical in in no. exactly the same way. It's it, you it know we me. at the beginning at the beginning of this year we had uh, we were we had. Uh, a, a bit of a what do we what do we call it Ali what what is what is the uh are we the... referring to the the RJ debacle yes we are the RJ debacle um Rosie Jones we had right yes, Rosie yes. Jones Gage. <laughs> yes. uh yeah for, for any of our listeners who don't know what we're talking about go back a few episodes it's yeah. it's, it's all in there yeah. um uh, but we uh, I was as the as the disabled person who could not access the gig because my legs don't work and have never worked and will never work i and i my day job is in accessibility anyway just general accessibility i got my a bee in my bonnet about it and we had discussions discussions are still ongoing with the organizers but it just baffles me that we've come out of a covid pandemic and there was no forethought forethought um into additional accessibility for people who maybe can't get down stairs in yeah. a basement and i found the whole thing exhausting upsetting um disappointing uh, it sparked a whole load of internalized ableism within me and you just think if if you could just take a step back and put yourself in my shoes or other people's shoes, you would see that to you it might just be a set of steps, but to the person who's happening to, it's a it's a whole heap of other issue and uh, uh, sort of it sparks a whole whole other problem. It's not just a set of steps. I was just going to say what I was going to say. So I just I think that that is just evidence that they just they're just not listening to no us they're not listening to those marginalized communities when no. we were when you know everything went online we were all sitting there going oh my god this is amazing i can finally access everything thank goodness and they they did not listen they didn't even think to to kind of reflect on how that experience how that change was being experienced by the disabled community so when then everything went back to face to face again, they it's they hadn't heard us say, "Hey, this is really inclusive for us now." 
because they simply hadn't even bothered to kind of check in with us. I have a half a poem written about the fact that we we could see we could see it like we could see the other world just and it was right there it was right there we were were so so close close. we've got a hand on the doorknob like the second half of the poem is about that sense of it all just watching it be taken away and have a a just and and because we were so close we were finally part of the world and it was uh and it's and it's really difficult to kind of like there is this problem with looking at a uh this kind of mass trauma and the people going but it was really good in one way like it's there there's this in it it's hard to accept and it's hard to kind of process that conflict because obviously it wasn't good at all there is a like our accessibility was not worth the mountain of corpses that there are but there's also my my approach to my life has always been that um I don't believe that things happen for a reason like people like to tell disabled people but I do believe that we can create meaning out of it and that's why I'm an activist that's why I spend so much time talking to people about the shit things that have happened to me because if I can Mm. make it easier for anyone then that is then it doesn't make what I went through worth it but it does make it does give it some meaning do you find Fiona that as an activist and as somebody who has gone through lots of not very nice things that it kind of makes the words we say to people when we are trying to put across what it means to us. We have a way with words of making it go, oh, even when you hear yourself say it, you go, oh, yeah, that was a good one. Look at their faces. <laughs> like a game you play I mean, with yourself. That's, that's part of why oh, I love poetry. Yeah. It's why I write poetry is because there, there are these, um, I mean, poetry has got me through a lot of terrible times in my life. It's always been my kind of constant for it. But there's also this feeling that as an activist, you, I mean, you tell the same stories again and again and again. You tell the same mm-hmm. stories about, um, like for me, I've been act. I've I've talked about being raped. I've talked about the disability. I've talked about, um, you know, childhood mental illness. I've talked about uh, being bi and all of the shit that that's brought with it and but you you do you you end up telling the same stories again and again and again and you you find the ways that reach people and unfortunately that can sometimes lull you into a false sense of security where you do think that if you could just find the right words then you could get people Mm, to understand and Mm. one of the hardest things about becoming the convener um in this political party was discovering that that wasn't true at all and that there was this whole set of people who were just intentionally twisting what I was saying or were intentionally going oh yes that's very serious and then completely ignoring me or just like running in the opposite direction and doing something terrible Mm -hmm. and we've heard you let's tick this box exactly and it yeah and that's a really difficult thing to come to terms with because you do think you know how can you listen to 
me telling you the story and not how can that not matter to you because it matters to me mm. when people tell me their stories it matters to me when people tell me that something I'm doing is hurting them again mm-hmm. yeah. but that's because you know you we're we're decent human beings you know I was gonna say that's because like... we're we're yeah. not soulless business people yeah. <laughs> who care about where our next paycheck's coming from but also as well, going back to the point of, you know, finding a way with words that, you know, we, we're, you know, if we can use our words, we will use them. That's why I quite like being called a gobby cow. Uh, because if you tell me to shut up, the likelihood is I won't. I'll just keep going until you go, all right, all right, I'll do it. Um, <laughs> uh, but um I think as well, like you were saying, because you have to tell these stories over and over and over, like they become like a rehearsed yeah. script in your head. Um, and sometimes because you've said them so many times, the the the, the knack of, of like pulling Yeah, indeed, they become performances. Like that, it gets lost. So you do have to kind of like every now and again go, oh, I'll say that yeah. instead of this. And like say it like this. And it's, it's, it's ridiculous, really. Because but, I think... Um, I think- one of the things that's kind of important about these sharing these our stories is that and you know one of the reasons I think why Lucy and I when we started planning this podcast one of the things that we both sort of said was we want to get different people on we want to get lots of different people on to tell their stories is because people people hear things and experience things and consume things differently and are kind of touched and enraged and turned on by different things and so getting I think I think letting it turn into a performance and turning into it it kind of lets you can be you can be lulled into just it's lip Mm -hmm. service Mm. um it's a script and actually one of the things and and it's it's a big ask of activists because like Fiona said, so often we're sharing really personal, intimate things. But I think it's it's really important for us when we are sharing those stories to be mindful of who we're sharing them with and what we're trying to achieve with sharing that story to make sure we're delivering it in a way that is going to have impact. There are many, there are many, many times I have probably overshared to Alice on the podcast because I forget there's a microphone in front of my face and me, me and Alice are very close friends now and I end up going blah, 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 and then going oh she probably should have said that <laughs> like but um yeah it's 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 weird when it's your own personal story and you think how far can I push this? I think that there's do you know what I mean I think that what you're talking about about the the purpose of the story is really important because there's uh I, I wrote a thing when I decided not to run again as the convener. So I I decided this year not to run because to be blunt, it had destroyed me. It was, uh, um, I don't know how much you know about Scottish politics, but um, being the equalities lead, equalities work is always hard it's always unpopular and like I I refer to myself as a professional killjoy (laughs) um (laughs) it is hard because even even good people even decent people 
believe that they are all four qualities, but. And right up until the point where there is an actual sacrifice which needs to be made or work that needs to be done, they like the idea of it. And then suddenly when you say, but this is the work that actually needs to happen, it becomes too much. And there is a, um, in across the entire kind of political sphere, then there is a, a, a real problem with this idea that you're supposed to be grateful for being given a seat at the table and you're supposed to not use it to challenge the dominant paradigms. And that's not what any of us got into this for. Like if, if you're involved yeah. in any of the kind of equalities work, then if you get into a room, you're going to use that opportunity. And I did. And uh, it had varying levels of effect. Uh, I think it did a lot of good in terms of getting people to think more, but it also, because we have the entire anti-trans thing happening in Scotland, I became a lightning rod for this movement of deep hatred. And mm. it means that I am... Um... And so interestingly, when we're talking about the stories that we share about these activists, like I talk about I talk about being raped. I talk about the termination that I had. I talk, which like nearly killed me. The grief from it nearly killed me. It was the right thing to do. I, and it, it's why I fight for reproductive rights, but it was the worst thing that's ever happened to me. Um, and mm. I talk about these devastating things, but because I've talked about them so often, then there's a wall between me and that. And and so then mm -hmm. I when I talk about poetry, there's there's a whole series of poems about other things that I can't put in the public sphere because they're things which can actually hurt me still. And that I can't let yeah, that yeah. group of people who spend their lives trying to hurt me, I can't give them that ammunition. Mm -hmm. And they don't and and it's really hard for even the people closest to me to understand that those things are not in fact the deep terrible devastating things that i talk about in my activist work all the time are no. are much more are the things that i haven't quite processed or worked through or healed yet those things are, are things that i have you know focused on in therapy and i have done the work on but there's a whole set of other like deep insecurities and deep traumas that i will not talk about in public and so you have to choose which things you're capable of doing because this idea that marginalized people are supposed to to be extremely graphic and in a Hemingway method um that we are in order to get people to care about us that we are supposed to open our veins at every opportunity like just spill our trauma and our blood and our tears to make to beg people to give even the tiniest amount of a shit that is not a yeah. reasonable request yeah. of people and it is not a reasonable cost to pay if you are not getting action and so it's vital that you choose where you spend that trauma where you spend that work that is something that i have learned from alice actually doing this podcast being able you know, I was a bit up until I did this podcast. I was always very much of the ill of the school of thought of, you know, if you've got any questions about my disability, ask me. 
and then when I spoke to, when we started talking about this podcast and we actually recorded it, it was one of our very first episodes. I think it was like a practice session. And I sort of said, you know, I'm quite an open book and to an extent I still am. And then Alice sort of turned around and said to me, well, why? Why are you satisfying other people's curiosity just for a quiet life? You don't have to tell yeah. anybody anything. And so now I am very selective about what what I say in the first instance and and who is privy to that mm -hmm. information um, because it, it, that in itself is I'm exhausting. very much the same I had the you same know. trajectory I, I started off with that whole thing of just ask me blah 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 just you know if you're curious then yeah. let me demystify things for you and and then as I got more and this is where I think that there's a line between disability activism and disability justice activism. And that's why I, I try to talk about myself as a disability justice activist now, because there is, because I do think that there is a, an important difference there, um, that there is a lot of work that disabled people do out of necessity, but that it doesn't necessarily mm. serve the the pursuit of justice and this is and yeah. that that was where i when i when i learned more about disability justice as a concept then i began being much more um like i still find it really hard in person if someone asks me a question i will often because i i am still kind of you know socialized to be um pleasing and, gra and grateful and all of that kind of stuff yeah. um, nice. I will yeah, yeah, yeah. I will often give them a basic answer and then I will say just for your information uh, a lot of people would find that question quite difficult to answer and it's not your business <laughs> you don't have a right to other no. people's medical details you don't have a right to ask them about it yeah no I still struggle with that um with the whole I don't really want to answer this question, but I've now find myself in a position where yeah, I'm because you're smiling anyway. and you're being nice, um, and I don't know how to explain to you that you're being yeah, exactly. really awful. And, you, and I don't want to like put you off talking yeah. to another disabled person, but what you've just said, I'm not answering the question yet. Here I am telling you that I was born with cerebral palsy and I've never been able to walk. The last time it happened to me. I was in a hospital getting a blood test done and one of the healthcare assistants said, what's wrong with you then? And because it took me off guard, I went, nothing's wrong with me. I've got cerebral palsy. And she asked a few more questions and a few more questions and then stood there and said, I don't know how you do it. If I no, were you, I'd kill myself. I knew you were going to say that. I knew that was what was going to be. And I was like, like, they think it's a compliment. What? Like, I never got yeah. over the fact that people think it's a compliment <laughs> to say that to you. Like, I've heard it so many times. I know, I, just... I know. I know. <laughs> but you kind of sit there and you go, because it doesn't happen all yeah. the time either as well. When it does happen, you're like, what did she just say? <laughs> and then the moment to challenge yeah, passed. her. By the time gone. you kind of, it filters yeah. through and you come back to the shock, then you're just like, <laughs> what? And you, like, uh? Uh, sometimes I've been able, sometimes <laughs> I've had the kind of wherewithal to say, 
no you wouldn't because you get used to it and this is this is the important yeah. thing I'm, I'm so off track here i'm sorry but but this is this is it's again fine. the the difference between... it's classic label <laughs> podcast don't worry about it um, the difference between again disability activism and disability justice activism is that this is the main reason why uh, disability justice activists have a an issue with what's called um uh, disability simulation exercises and it's uh th these are the things where you put people into a wheelchair for an afternoon and get them to navigate uh an area or you put them blindfold on and get them to do stuff and it you know there is a a real there is a really useful and important premise behind it that most people until yeah. you are in a position where you have to just don't notice any of this shit. Like I, I remember my my own disability, my physical disability. That is, like I had the mental stuff for many years, but my my physical disability came on in its acute form when I was nineteen, and I, everyone around me was suddenly aware, and they talked a lot about how they'd never noticed about the curbs and the inaccessibility of places until they were out with me and pushing my chair because I, I don't have the strength of my arms to do anything and I certainly couldn't afford an electric chair so you know just uh <laughs> no um so they so there is a value there's a there is an obvious value to it except that what actually comes of these exercises because it's so limited it tends to be mm the feeling of helplessness and of horror is the thing that people mm. remember and they believe mm -hmm. that that is the the disabled experience is helplessness and they don't ever because yeah. they don't spend enough time learning about how you actually do it so so the, the much better way of doing it is being paired with a disabled person going around an area and have that disabled person narrating the things that they are noticing the obstacles that they're getting around and how they're getting around them what they're doing to change it like how they yeah. have solved the shitty access problems of their life that's exactly that's what the able but that's what the non-disabled yeah. people don't say they don't see the they don't see the disabled yes. joy. <laughs> the, the problem solving um, and the way, like the million things yeah. that, like it's work and it shouldn't we shouldn't have to do it but you know the fact that but they should see how we navigate these things how like they should know that i'm taking like this longer route because it is um it doesn't have the steep hill and uh, you know it yeah it, it, this is really interesting for me so um i said earlier that i i got a new job recently and as um i work for a charity who um do uh, awareness raising training um, and sort of improving uh, networking and connections for people with um, LD and neurodiversity. Uh, and as part of that work, I deliver 12 health-based sessions to uh, young people with neurodiversity about empowering themselves to understand their rights around health their um how to you know maintain their own health how to 
um, engage with health professionals, things like that. And two weeks ago, we did a session on visual impairment, which I led. Um, and as part of that session, we had, I mean, we started off just having a little bit about, of a chat about general eye health. Um, and moving forward from that, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, more uh, sort of severe sight loss, visual impairments. And as part of that, I did give this gr group of 20 uh, 17 to 25 year olds those uh, glasses that simulate certain eye conditions. Um, and taking the piss of it a little bit so I handed out the tunnel vision ones and I was like got these ones handed out the glaucoma ones oh I don't have this one handed out the cataract <laughs> ones was like got that one as well it was like <laughs> I sight loss bingo um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and they you know they were sort of handing them around and trying them on and having a bit of a chat about it and as they were doing that I was saying so some of these um you know conditions are genetic are untreatable some of these are going to be related to age some of these are uh things that can be resolved through um you know operations things like that I talked a little bit about uh the cataract operations that i've had and said you know generally most people who have cataract operations are older um and therefore it's a risk to put them under general anesthetic so it's all done under local so you're awake but I said, there's absolutely no way you're fucking around in my yeah. eyes while I'm awake. <laughs> <laughs> and because I was 20 when I had mine done, they put mm. me under general. Um, and one of the lads in the front of the class who is gobby, and I have so many stories. This is the guy who, when we were talking about uh, hygiene, we said, you know, what are possible times where you might want to be <laughs> oh, more... more uh, you know, aware of washing <laughs> your hands, and he went <laughs> after a wank. Good for oh. him. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> um, I mean, I mean. Uh, yeah. So he. <laughs> so we were funny. just fine. Uh, I said, I said, I mean, you should probably do it beforehand as well. <laughs> we're talking about hygiene here. Um, and we so yeah so i was talking about you know how most people are awake for cat and he happened to have the cataract glasses on at the moment and he went oh i couldn't do that like i i would refuse i'd refuse to have the operation and i said well you know your choices are kind of you have the operation or uh you could potentially lose your vision mm. completely and he went I'd just kill myself. God. And I, I immediately, my brain immediately thought of the HCA story Lucy's just told. And I said, do you think I should kill myself? And it's just, and he, he got immediately like, oh mm -hmm. shit. Like, oh, you know, I don't know what to do about this. I didn't. And he was, oh, well, you, but you can, you can still, it's not the same for you. And I was like, it's, it's exactly the same for me. I, and, and it's, it's really interesting to hear you talking about those kind of those simulation exercises and how it feeds into that, that mm. horror mm. and actually how those, you know, <laughs> that is literally an example of, but what you were saying and what Lucy's saying is sort of mm -hmm. in one 
space that he he went i i couldn't live with this sight condition but i also could not put myself through the potential trauma of having my eye operated on and so i would simply end my life and i said and i you know when he said go and i just said to him it's just just think you know what you've basically just said to me there is that my life is not worth Mm -hmm. living if those are my options if i have to have my eyes operated on or i have to and i will i'll go blind my sight my eye condition is degenerative you know so i should just stop now i should just give up now save save everybody else the grief don't do that al we've got a podcast to host (laughs) (laughs) so this is this is one of the things um i'm i'm genuinely not trying to hawk my zine um but i when when all this started when the pandemic started and as i said i wrote this article about the coming wave of disability what i also saw coming at that stage was that those newly disabled people would talk to each other and not to already mm-hmm. disabled people and i've been in those mm. spaces before because b- before we had the internet and before we had the kind of organized disability or chronic illness community the disability community was already organized in a lot of ways but chronic illness by its nature is very isolating and um mm, so there yes. wasn't as much of an organized space for that um and i've so i've been in i've been in the spaces of people who are newly sick and they can be incredibly destructive um, because there is, if they don't have elders there, and I'm not talking about elders in age, but elders in terms of experience, if they don't have people who've been through this and have learned the processes, then they can kind of feed off each other's despair. And mm. so I, I began working on at first it was a series of articles but um then a commission came up that um a arts organization in Aberdeen was um running and so I kind of submitted my application to that which is that I wanted to write a zine that would be free it's it free online um accessible to anyone who can get access to it um that it had poetry it's got like six poems in it about kind of the process of becoming sick and about the process of also learning to live and but it also has like a set of the various tips that you that come from 20 years of this uh, the, the things that all of these newly disabled people these newly chronically ill people mm. suddenly navigating a world where most of them will not have been sick before most of them they are they are mm. coming from like normal healthy lives where they just you know they're not largely coming from um the experience of dealing with all of this yeah i've had i wouldn't necessarily say because of covid but i've had it before where friends of friends you know friends of friends of the family um something's happened to uh, you know either them or their spouse or something 
and they are going through that period of transition, which is it's always awful. it's it's awful. Horrific. It's horrific. You're grieving difficult. for your old yeah. life. You're was... grieving. You don't know who exactly. you are now. Yeah, and um, it you know it was difficult for my mom when I was diagnosed with cerebral palsy because she didn't know what was happening. Um, uh, and they have often said to me, which sometimes I wish they wouldn't. I'd rather not know. But um, they'll they'd, they'll say to me, you know, things things are quite shit at the moment, but I know that it can be all right, you know, with the yeah. right support and the right help, it can be all right. And when I've sort of said, well, how how, how do you know? And they were like, because we know you, <laughs> we know that you're not always mm-hmm. sad about disability things, mm-hmm. and you know, it's not it's not an end of life sentence. It's a you can live with it it's going to be difficult but i can and it, it kind of makes me feel a little bit it's i don't know, I don't know yeah it's, it's a, a complicated feeling because you're like yeah, you know are you is is my life that shit that you're thinking oh well you know she gets on with it so it must be okay i i'm my eye condition like i say it's degenerative but actually it's really rare for people with my eye condition to be diagnosed as young as I was most people don't get diagnosed until they're well into their 40s Mm. um and so I I'm on a couple of Facebook groups that are like for people with RP retinitis pigmentosa and they are filled with newly diagnosed people or people of family members who have recently been diagnosed and it is all about how do you cope with what you know what do people think about this treatment i've heard that there's this magic rock you can buy and things like that magic eye cream (laughs) exactly and i i i work i don't engage with those a lot because i find them it like lucy said it makes me feel like a little bit like going these people are going oh this is so all i can think about is how i get out of this um but one of the thing when I do engage with those sorts of, you know, the posts on there, the thing I always try and say to people is, well, you know, how I, I learned to cope was by having some therapy to accept mm-hmm. my changing body and learning to use mobility aids and like orientation aids and stuff like that so that I can still be independent. Because the worst thing I think that, you can do when you get diagnosed with my eye condition is go yeah. how do i treat it what do, how do i stop it because because you are still going to have to live with this and that i mean that's why i love disability yes. twitter so much more yeah. because disability twitter is <laughs> people going i mean this happened and it was shit but also also <laughs> you know, my dogs and you know just there's it's always not... somebody with like a joke or a quip you know yeah, exactly. uh, you're like they're so real like the thing about it is that it's real and this is the thing that I, I tried to put into the zine so it's called your life is not over um because because that's the message that people do not get like everything about yeah. our entire culture is built on this idea that if you get sick and you don't get better then you kill yourself that's the outcome mm-hmm. and if you <laughs> like like you're supposed to throw yourself into trying to get better and if you don't if you if you fail then off you go and it 
there's this real um we don't ever see the stories of disabled people whose good happy outcome is still being disabled but having a decent life like figuring out a way to live and and so Oh, you the only oh, version of that you ever get is that really skewed inspiration porn. Uh, oh, you know. but, that's, but that's, I mean, that's <laughs> what I mean. Like they we'll are so. Like, yeah. Those things are only in. So I talk about in one of the poems. I talk about the archetypes. So there's the there's the super crip um, who goes on to yeah. do Paralympics and stuff, who's used as a weapon to beat every other disabled people who mm. isn't an Olympian, mm-hmm. because apparently that's what the bar is. Um, there's the <laughs> sad-eyed child who is, again, mm-hmm. there, again, as a weapon to beat abled people with in that purpose that it's your, you think your life is bad, but look at the ill child yeah you have nothing to kill co- you have like nothing to complain about you have nothing mm. to cry about exactly tiny tim, i call it? it tiny tim yeah and it yes the tiny tim idea <laughs> um <laughs> the uh the tragic but noble suicide which we've covered um yeah and the monster yeah. the 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 person like anytime you're watching a movie disabled person shows up they're the villain (laughs) they're always going to be the villain because they're always and it's never because they are angry at the world being inaccessible it's always because they are bitter that other people are well and they're not or that they're scarred and other people it's bond villain stuff isn't it uh like (laughs) we we came up with um there was a, a thing the other day on twitter that was um people talking about liz carr being a bond villain which would be awesome but only if she I was like it was very specifically turning the bond idea on its head and having her burning the fucking yes. world down for not being accessible and having bond <laughs> show up realize what she was doing realizing that she's right and helping her yes, yes exactly. absolutely absolutely there's so many there's so many stories that we get told that are all the same like five stories and and there's so much space mm, yeah. for all these other ones and when you get the space for all these other ones then you get to talk about um you get to talk about the intersections you get to, uh, i'm trying to bring it back to what i was originally I was going to say, you did very, very good. Very well done. I know. Back onto the original. I'm very, I'm very used to trying to kind of corral myself back onto point when I realise I've gone up into five other things. I said to um, Lucy before we started, a friend of mine once said that going to the pub with me was like having a really weird TED talk. Um, But there's when you get these other stories. So I have had the one of the great privileges of being the convener was that people tell me their stories people come to me with their problems mm. and it means that i've had like i've been able to experience a ton of things that i had never it had never occurred to me that they would be problems it had never occurred to me that um how those things would interact with each other so for example um one of the things that we're talking about now in in scotland is the the gra the gender recognition act um there's a lot of discussion about what the metrics for that should be. And there's a lot of people who believe that medical transition should be the 
the factor that is important there, except that I have, um, as a disability activist, not so much as a in the LGBTQ side of things, but as a disability activist, I've known a number of people who are trans and have EDS, which is what I have. And mm. there is a strong hormonal component to EDS. And there is a there's a lot of people who find that hormonal treatments are really dangerous to them. There's there's mm. um, other people who find that it really helps their EDS because uh, um, there's elements of uh, it's to do with how estrogen interacts with collagen. And so um, mm. most uh, cis women with EDS will find that their joints are, are super loose around the periods. Um, and there's a we get very jangly around then um that happens to everyone it's not even just about eds there's a well-known um correlation to muscle injuries and joint sprains in athletes around peak periods so there is a but there are ways that this interacts so if you suddenly start screwing about with people's hormones when that comes to it then you find that trans people have to decide between um their kind of physical condition yeah. and their gender yeah. identity and that's a very personal decision a lot of them will make um decisions to kind of do some but not all or, or you know take us take um very low doses of things and, and see how they get on they also often can't have surgeries because surgeries are high risk and yes because of healing mm -hmm. issues um and so if we put into if we maintain a need for medical inter intervention, then we are, mm. it's not just that we are screwing over trans people, but also that we are being specifically ableist in law because we are taking a specific yeah. cohort of trans people and saying, okay, but you don't count now because you have other conditions which make this hard to access and which complicate mm. the decisions that you make. Mm -hmm. And it's and it, mm -hmm. the same thing comes up with um, when we're talking about people with uh, mental health conditions um, and people like the big thing, of course, because she's she's gone on a, a rant about it this week. Um, there's a lot of people talk about the intersection between autism and being trans and. Um, mm. and if you, if you know autistic people, you know why that intersection is there <laughs> and because, and, yeah. and the thing is that it's, it's like the polar opposite of what the anti-trans narrative is because the anti-trans narrative is that autistic mm. people are so naive that they are easily groomed into being trans, they're told that they're trans mm. and they become trans because they don't have theory of mind and they can't make decisions about their own lives whereas the reality is the autistic people are so much more aware of the kind of expected norms of behavior because they have to, because they mm. need largely to mask in their day life mm -hmm. so they have mm -hmm. to be aware and conscious of these norms in a way that neurotypical people just aren't we kind of it, we don't think about the ways that we're doing that and, and so if they are aware of it, then they can challenge it much earlier than 
other people um, mm. get to. So it's it's not so much that there are more autistic trans people. There may be there may be interesting correlations there. Who knows? It doesn't actually matter. <laughs> uh, like there's yeah. there's not. It doesn't matter if like if more autistic people are trans. That you know there's there's no bad thing about both of those things. So, um, but mm. even but my instinct and from the studies that have been done it seems to be that it's just that they find out earlier so they they show up in youth statistics much more often um whereas mm. it evens out kind of as people get older mm. and start acknowledging that it's you know if you're looking for something yeah. you're more likely to see it and that's exactly what it is if you if you've been I mean, you've been groomed yeah. by society to behave a certain way, essentially. And so you learn to look for those things so that you can mimic them because those aren't necessarily the things that make sense to you mm -hmm. or come naturally to you. And so then you can't help but notice where your different yeah. sort of feelings and behaviours might actually be And you also be notice how arbitrary it all is, like how, how, how much bullshit yeah. oh, yeah, this is absolutely. and that they're not going to waste their energy. They're limited, you know, they, they, because, because masking is exhausting. They're not going to waste their energy yeah. masking that on top of everything else. <laughs> and no. I mean, that was, that was one of the things that immediately sprung to my head when you were talking about, um, you know, the the bill that's going um sort of being explored in scotland at the moment about a kind of trans mm. trans labeling really is like <laughs> whose business is it other than yours what what you're rocking in your pants and what you're showing on the outside whose fucking business is it yours and perhaps the people that you choose to sleep with so long as they're also you know interested Again, Alice, you've got such a way with the words. <laughs> <laughs> but, this, but this is such a big thing, and and it, and it's so. I think that this is where the LGBTQ plus community and the disability community has so much overlap. Is that so much of this is about the concepts of consent and bodily autonomy? That these are like the right yeah, to make yeah. decisions about our own lives is such an essential part yeah. of disability activism, and so it means that we should be. And, and this is it's it's if you don't know like all of the background of it then it sounds really paranoid but unfortunately there's a vast amount of evidence for this that that a significant amount of this particular strand of political work is being pushed by by people who are trying to roll back reproductive rights and lgbt rights and and kind of those things which those kind of gains that we've made over the over the years and mm. a large part of that will end up and cannot do anything other than harm disabled people because it's so based in this concept that mm. we are not um we are not capable of making decisions for ourselves that we have to be taken care of that we have to be protected and that is mm going back to the thing about people living with their families um it's it's one of the big problems for um people with intellectual disabilities who are lgbt that there's a there's mm -hmm. a belief um in a lot of people that they need to be protected from the kind of concepts of sexuality and the concepts of of gender and that that any kind of um that it's the purpose of the of the parent to 
just like shut everything down and keep them in a child state and it means that there's a a lot of people who um the kind of desexualization of, of people and or the hypersexualization on the on the other end of the scale um which leads to a lot of abuse in institutions then there's a huge amount of um mm. of complexity about this but the fact is that it comes down to people making their own decisions about their own lives yeah Fiona, I could talk to you all day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, but I, mm -hmm. I have to walk my dog, so we can't. <laughs> she's she's given up oh. with sitting with her chin on my knee and is now lying on the floor. In Poor the me. Oh, I'm just stay here then. <laughs> Fine, you've abandoned me. Fiona, if you ever want to join us in the pub for real, a bit of a uh, trek, um, unfortunately, yeah, from Aberdeen, please. but you know, I was going to say, <laughs> yeah. it's. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, there's a good fifty miles between <laughs> me and Lucy, so yeah. we'll have to try and find a sort of halfway. But yes. definitely, we'll definitely Yay. add you to our gang. Thank you. Yes. I'm very glad about that. <laughs> Fiona, do you want to plug your zine and where people can find you on the Ooh, internet? Oh, I would love to. And um, my zine is called your life is not over um a book of apocalypses and how to survive them um it's called that because <laughs> when i sat down to start writing the poetry for it i discovered um quite quickly that they were all fairly apocalyptic and there was uh um you know yeah. meteor strikes and uh um floods <laughs> and wildfires and stuff so i thought that it was uh but it has it has a bunch of practical tips about um, how to build systems that um, that work for you, how to just like a, a bunch of things kind of a, that their only purpose is really absolving you of the of the guilt that people will try to put on you about using mobility aids or using systems that make life easier for you. Um, just make life as easy for you as possible. It's got stuff about how to deal with shitty doctors, about how to um, how to judge treatments, and you know whether they're charlatans or or worth trying, um, mm -hmm. and you know how to kind of balance those things because most chronically ill people will get targeted. Um, but uh, you can find me on Twitter at uh, Fiona SMP, and my pinned tweet is a link to the zine. It's entirely free online. You can buy physical copies of it if you want them. Um, and there's a link to that there. Fabulous. Thank you so much for your time, Fiona. Lovely it's been to talk to you. Thank you so much. You. Sorry for rambling so much about ranting things. No. <laughs> not, not at all that's what we're experts here and if if you if you guys uh enjoyed our vaguely <laughs> pride themed ramblings then don't forget to uh subscribe and come along for our dedicated pride series in june where there will be more vaguely pride themed ramblings <laughs> we will see you all next time bye bye bye, bye. Thanks for listening to The Label Podcast. If you like the show, you can rate, review and subscribe and you can follow us on social media at Labelled Pod. This episode was edited by Adam Hawke. Our music was by Maisie Crunden and we'd like to thank the rest of the team involved. <laughs>